What's up, everybody? This week, we got Micah Davidson on the podcast. He's produced huge festivals like Bristol Rhythm and Roots, uh, Orange Blossom Review, and many others throughout the, the East Coast. He's represented huge artists, Tab Benoit, um, and countless others as an agent. Uh, he's promoted for and talent bot for many venues in Charlotte and throughout North Carolina and working on some new stuff as we speak. Uh, the insight that he has into the industry, the live music performance side of it, it's so deep. So uh, this conversation w for me was a lot of fun because I love that kind of stuff. And I think that you're going to get some interesting little tidbits out of it as well. So um, enjoy the episode. Here's Micah Davidson, guys. All right, guys, this episode is brought to you by Best Buds CBD Store. If you're like me, maybe THC isn't always the right high for you. Or maybe the legal status of THC has you a bit hesitant to indulge. So at Best Buds CBD Store, they have an array of CBD and Delta 8 THC products. These guys truly care about their service, so everything is meticulously sourced and prepared to deliver a top-notch product and experience. If you head to their website, you'll find all kinds of educational information regarding Delta THC and CBD. Uh, not to mention if you use promo code BOTBPOD, that's B-O-T-B-POD, you'll save 10% on your order. This is not a one-time deal. If you use promo code BOTBPOD, every time you place an order with Best Buds, uh, it will give you 10% off. That's in perpetuity forever. So head over to bestbudscbdstore.com and start saving on all of your CBD and Delta A products. Enjoy, guys. All right, Micah Davidson, how you doing, bro? I'm doing very well. Hi, man. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on. It's an honor to be on, man. Yeah. Been looking forward to this. I think we set this up like a month or so ago. Yeah. And I've been just sort of waiting, just waiting to see what are we going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely, I'm curious about everything that you got going on. We were talking a little bit before this. Uh, for those who don't know, you produce festivals up and down the East Coast. What are some of the ones you've done in the past? What are some of the ones you're kind of currently doing? Uh, well, you know, we've got, we've, so, We've actually got seven different venues that we do the programming for up and down the East Coast, as well as one in Colorado. And then we've got the festivals and uh, the concert series that we produce. So um, I'm the owner or one of the owners of the North Carolina Brewers and Music Festival, which is in May, Mother's Day weekend every year up in Charlotte. We've got a big concert series that we actually just announced the lineup for up at Beach Mountain Ski Resort in Beach Mountain, North Carolina, that we we're doing a big summer show. We take over a ski slope and turn it into a big amphitheater and Bristol Rhythm and Roots Reunion, which is our biggest festival that we help produce. Um, and then Orange Blossom Review, which is down in, you know, in, in December, which you've performed on um, down uh, in Lake Wales. And then um, we've got... Uh, a concert series in Lake Wales, the Bach Tower concert series, uh, the Concert Under the Stars concert series that we do. And then we also do a winter series for uh, Beach Mountain. Um, we have done the Philadelphia Folk Festival and White Rose Music Festival and some others in the past. And, uh, you know, got a few other irons in the hopper for some potential opportunities in, on the horizon. So, yeah, we do a little bit of a lot of. I'm curious as to how you got started with this side of the industry because you were a musician first, right? Correct. It's interesting because like, you know, to me play, playing music, like, you know, in the industry side, there's, there's the business that I do enjoy, but for, for me, like the music is like still a thing that I'm, that I'm always chasing. What made you want to kind of 
put the brakes on that and move into like the, the, the promoting side and talent buying and all that? Well, I, I think it, at the end of the day, I'm an event organizer. You know, I think that's where my, my heart really is. I mean, you can, those people who listen to the podcast can't see it clearly, but there is a base hanging uh, on my wall behind me in, in, in the, in the zoom. I started as a musician and eventually being part of different bands and touring and not really finding the success in that. And then um, I had an opportunity. I was literally sitting on my couch one day with a friend and we were talking about how bad the music scene is here in Charlotte. That's where I live, Charlotte, North Carolina. And, uh, and we looked at each other and I sort of remembered something I learned from, uh, from a guy years before that working in a restaurant where the guy uh, was like, you're you're only allowed to complain about the things that you're willing to actually do something about. Right. Like if you're going to sit around and do nothing, what's the point of complaining? It doesn't serve any purpose. So. So I decided if I was going to complain, then I better get off my ass and do something. And so I started just promoting shows. I, I started an, an, org, an organization called the originally it was called the Charlotte Jam Band Society. And the whole point was not about jam band music. It was literally to try and get metal guitar players to play with classically trained pianists and jazz drummers and hip hop, you know, uh, uh, DJs or something like that. Right. Like form bands in the scene to try and basically be like, we're all part of music period. Let's bring every genre and all of that together and do a once a week, like true jam session where we would get a list of all of these artists. And then me and some friends would literally like handpick different people, connect them and let them figure out how to get together over the next week and uh, and then get together and sort of do like a big jam session show kind of thing. And how would that go? But the jam band calling it Charlotte Jam Band Society didn't help much because, again, jam bands, whatever. So we changed it to the Carolina Live Music Society. And that's when we really became a promoter. And we started doing uh, shows um, throughout Charlotte. We built up a street team. We gave a lot of incentive for people to, to start playing. Uh, helping with marketing and and being part of things you know that get uh, after mar helping market 10 shows you get a free ticket to to any show you like this kind of thing so on and so on we got the venues to communicate more together if you're going to compete you know how do you compete less you're going to compete no matter what but how can you at least communicate to try and give each other the best chance of of success and different things like that and it's kind of snowballed from there because then i took over a, a music venue here in charlotte called the double door and I became the general manager of that place and was doing all the marketing and hiring the bands and all of this. And then uh, eventually got hired by there was an agency based here in Charlotte called Blue Mountain Artists. I represented people like George Porter Jr. and Tab Benoit and Bonarama and Tim Reynolds and so on. And um, they asked if I would be interested in coming over and being an agent. And so I was apparently feeling frisky and decided that I would continue to run the double door while I was becoming an agent and uh, I was representing like 60 bands in the Southeast and the deep South while Jesus. running a venue full time. And six months into that, I know you're already exhausted from the story. And Literally. six months into that, <laughs> uh, somebody called me and asked, and asked, uh, they were looking for one of the artists that we were representing at the time to be a, uh, to be a band on a, on a, they were putting together a concept for a festival here in Charlotte and they were looking for pricing. And by the end of the conversation, we decided we should have lunch. We had lunch. By the end of that lunch, we decided we should do the festival together. And that's the North Carolina Brewers and Music Festival. So that that's the one that I own. So that's that was our first year was 2010. We're going, you know, in about two months time, we've got uh, the festival coming up for year 
11, technically 13 because of the pandemic, but oh, right. year 11. So, um, so at, at one point I was literally running a, a music venue full time. I was an agent for about 60 artists and I had a festival that I was running. And after about two years of that, I was like, I can't keep doing this. Right. So, you know, started to shift some things around and so on. But, um, yeah, that's sort of a short, quick, but not really quick version of that story. But, but there's really no way to make that quick. Like the, the amount of shit that you have going on just all the time is insane. Like you're one yeah. of the busiest people that I know. Um, and, uh, it's cool because this thing that I want to go back to that I've never really thought about before, but this kind of starting this collective with artists and venues in, in a scene and having them communicate about the different shows that are going to be going on and how we can kind of maximize everybody's, uh, you know, profit or, you know, attendance, whatever it might be. Um, how, do, how did that concept come to you? And was that something that was happening in other places that you found out about? And you're like, how do we do that here? Or is that an original idea that you had? And you're like, let's, let's see how we can make this work. It was original as far as I'm aware. I, Lord willing, I hope I'm not the smartest guy in the room everywhere I go. I'm pretty sure I'm the dumbest guy most of the time. But um, I'm hoping that those are things that exist in other markets. But but in, in Charlotte, it it was definitely an, an original idea. I don't mind saying that or admitting to that or whatever. But we would, we would have communication going between the venues. To me, it was all about we're all in this together. The reality is, is that if, if this venue, you have three venues that are pitching for the same band, right? And they all give they all give that agent an offer, and two of them are going to lose. Right? You got three venues, three people put out offers. The band can only play at one place on any given night, right? So, the other two venues are going to lose. But at the end of the day, as long as that artist comes through the area, you are still building a scene. Maybe that particular venue doesn't get that show, but now that venue has the opportunity to do a show for a different artist, and now they potentially know that some said bluegrass band that technically all three venues knew that they wanted to go after in the first place. Now the other two know that they shouldn't do bluegrass that night. Right. Cause right. so-and-so confirmed at some other venue. So now one venue is going to do, you know, uh, hip hop and another venue is going to do say Latin or whatever. Um, but it would create more of an opportunity to literally be like, we're, we're supposed to be a music scene, not a bluegrass town or a country town or a jam band town or whatever. We're supposed to have a really great music scene here. And it's Charlotte. I'm actually having another meeting with a group of people tomorrow who are all from all different walks of, of the music scene here in Charlotte. And we've met before to talk about doing a conference here. And the biggest thing is, is most of the time when you go to a conference, there's sort of a direction that that conference is going in, whether it be folk music, whether it be, you know, Canadian art, like there's a, a theme, if you will. Right. And uh, there's so many amazing artists from so many different genres that came out of North Carolina as a whole that we're, we're struggling on exactly. Is there a true direction or, or how do we actually celebrate that, but attract people because there's no one clear vision of what you're trying to attract. You're like, well, we just want to attract everyone. Right. But you know, you have to market and how do you technically market to everyone? Right. Um, that that can be a confusing topic because you might want people who are like, I only want to go see the hip hop. I only want to go see the jam band. I only want to go see the jazz. You know, how do you sort of design that? But that was the concept back in the day was, was that there's a scene here. How do we get everybody to understand we're all part of it together? And how are you facilitating that communication? Was there like, was there like a database? Was there like, you know, were you just kind of like talking to the venue owners and kind of going back and forth? How are you able to facilitate the conversation and actually see results? Well, we were we were 
one, we were actually starting to produce our own shows in the different venues. So we were we were, you know, having communication about what's happening here versus what's happening there and this kind of stuff. But we got the venues to, you know, once a month, every six weeks, something like that to have a conversation. And maybe wasn't in person. It might have been just a quick email blast. Everyone, hey, is anybody working on this other offer mm. or is anyone working on this other band? Like, you know, just some general communications back and forth between some people, some text messages. From time to time, I would meet with this this talent buyer, and then I'd go off to another meeting with this talent buyer, and and that kind of stuff, and just make sure that everybody knew that we're all talking to each other on this situation. Did things ever get sticky? I'm curious, like when it came to you know the offers that were getting put in, and people finding out about you know if there was any undercutting or just venue, bands taking maybe maybe a better deal somewhere else when they could have gotten a I don't know, just like did things ever get sticky like that? Not that I'm necessarily aware of, and I'm not saying it didn't by any means, right. but I don't I don't remember there being any real issues where like this promoter got super pissed at that promoter or anything like that. At the end of the day, the reality is, is that one, none of us should take any of it personal. And two, um, you know, the, the agent should really be a little bit more honest also about whether or not they're like, hey, listen, I've got an offer for such and such a venue over here. I am also talking to this other venue over there, you know. I'm not trying to pitch against each other, but this is what the other people offered. If you want to put in an offer that competes, great, that kind of stuff. But I'm not forcing you to do like there should be some open communication about that. And we were trying to get that to happen. That's I mean, I feel like it kind of helps everybody anyways to have like the like the agent can use it as leverage. The venues can kind of, exactly. you know, it's uh, <coughs> um, obviously, you know, the high you're probably dealing with with venues that are similar cap. Right. So it's like there's maybe like a difference of, a you know, a few hundred people and that might help with, uh, you know, paying a little bit more money for a band. But is there like a is there an upside to a band like taking like a like a, a lower deal uh, or less money at a smaller room to try and sell it out to say that they've sold out a market before uh, versus like, you know, doing a bigger room that you might not sell out, but get a little bit more money from? I mean, I, I think that there's a big strategy to that I, th I think it's always going to depend on the situation for sure. But in my opinion, I would say you take the smaller show and sell it out. So that way, because at the end of the day, if you can sell out, then you can build a demand. If you're if you're doing a show and you don't be you don't have the ability to put the word sold out on your marketing, then you don't you, you, you you're not building up as much demand um, for your brand. Um, and it doesn't mean you're not building a demand. You're just not, in my opinion, not building as much of a demand. And I think you need to be looking at it long term. The other thing that I think an artist needs to be constantly thinking about is who supported you from the beginning. You know, if you're an artist and you're like, I keep going back to this venue and that venue, I love the promoter. I love the venue. I love the vibe. But we're now starting to grow a little bit and we're starting to sell out his place and so on. He's the one who probably lost his ass nine out of the 10 times you play at his venue, right? And now he's finally making some money off of you. In my opinion, you should make sure that your agent and your full team and your management and whether you have those things or not, you go back to that talent buyer and you say, listen, we think we're ready to go to this other venue, but you're the guy who's always helped us. Guy, girl, whatever. You are our, you are our team. You've been our family from the beginning. Are you willing to go to this other venue and go into it as an outside promoter so right. we can still make make sure you make money, right? We're not – you believed in us. We believe in you. We want to continue this partnership. And I think there's a lot of times where agents and uh, bands 
sometimes forget that. And I, I'm not I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not saying it happens across the board all all the time, but I think it definitely happens in this industry where people don't take the time to go to the people who who really helped get a band off the ground. Yeah, make I, sure they get. Stay. Yeah, I like to think that that's more of um uh that happens out of ignorance and there's no malice involved in that, right? Because it's like. Right. You would think that somebody that's that has the experience would would know to do that and not just kind of willingly disregard that that connection in order to kind of get ahead. Uh, you would think that that's a call that that that, that doesn't get made because they, they just don't know. But then again, you never know in this industry because people are just kind of out for themselves a lot of the time too. So it's like, and sometimes it's a hard conversation to have because you're like, hey, we want to you want to go to a different venue. It just kind of, you know, when you're when you're on the end of it where you're trying to get shit done, it's like, well, why do we have to go to go to this person here, get them involved and prolong this process? We might lose a date. We might, you know, if we're dragging our feet, whatever it might be. So I'm trying to think about it from all angles, but yeah, obviously the idea would be to kind of grow your team and be loyal to the people that were loyal to you at first, you know? Exactly. I mean, if anything, give them the opportunity. And as you start to see your numbers grow, don't wait till the last minute to have a conversation, start having that conversation from the beginning, right? you know? Uh, we're willing to stay with you as long as you possibly want us to do that. But when we go to another venue, are you willing to go to the other venue with us? Right. You know, um, and and it gives them the ability to totally say, nah, that's not what we do. Okay, cool. Now we go out and we sell out that bigger venue and that, we, that you know, there's a shit ton of money made by all. And that other promoter missed out on the opportunity. But at the same time, some people are like, this is my wheelhouse. I'm done with that. You know, you guys, I, I wish you all the best of luck and go off and do the things you're going to go do, you know? Right. right. It, it should be the same way, whether you're an agent who's got a band who's moving on or you've got, uh, you know, you're the manager or you are the artist, whatever it is, and you're moving on to another agent. It should be it should be all of that open communication, just talking about, you know, where do those things make the most sense to move? Right, right. So I'm curious. uh Obviously, you mentioned that you were representing um, a bunch of uh, a bunch of different bands. So, how did you get involved with the booking side of it from from the promoting and from or just from this collective that you built in Charlotte, with having the venues communicate this and that, promoting shows, and then you go to like booking bands. How did you make that transition, and why did you make that transition? So, um, I'll, I'll you've probably heard me say this maybe over the few years that we've known each other, but. Um, I'm a firm believer that, especially in this industry, and to some extent, probably in all, but especially in this industry, the more you, the more general knowledge you have, the more employable you are. But even if you become, you eventually land on one thing and you become an expert in that thing, your ability to have a conversation on some level with everyone in the industry, have some understanding of how a box office works, have some understanding of marketing, some understanding of, of uh, crowd control, security, some some understanding of 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 uh, you know, producing an event, understanding production, loading in a band, loading out a band, you know, uh, the timing of those things. Who do you get in first? You know, how do you move things around on the stage? All of that kind of stuff. The more knowledge you have, the better off you are. So when uh, I was, like I said, I was running the venue here in Charlotte. I, I was doing the Carolina Live Music Society. There was a venue that we were doing shows in. And at the time when I was doing the Carolina Live Music Society, there was a, I was actually the bar manager for a golf club. Oh, wow. Uh, like during my day job, <laughs> day if job. you will. Wow. Yeah. So, um, and the golf club actually went to renovate. They were going to re renovate the entire course. So they were like, we don't need as much staff. None, there aren't going to have, you know, golfers here and whatever. 
So, um, so I went to one of the venues that we were doing shows at and I was like, you guys, we do a lot of shows with y'all. I think you're ready for a true in-house talent buyer to take over. Cause the owner was sort of, you know, was getting older and all of that. And, um, uh, and so I was like, you know, I'd like to leave this other thing. And so they made me, they brought me in and ironically, like the only way for them to truly make it work on the offset, at least it wasn't this way, you know, for, for much longer than about a year, but I was, I would, they had a little lady bitty like fry kitchen during the day that they would serve to this community college across the street. So I would have to cook food during the day. And at this point it was like, like any way to stay in this industry, that's what I wanted to do. And so I became a, I was a sort of a fry cook, if you will, during the day and doing the programming, like, you know, when I wasn't making a, a meal or something like that, I was making phone calls and emails and so on, um, booking these, these artists at this venue. And I became the talent buyer for that. But there was an agency here in town called blue mountain artists, which doesn't exist anymore. It's now called the catch agency, but, um, Blue Mountain Artists, I was booking a lot of their artists in the venue. So, And they were based here in Charlotte, so I knew who they were and got to become friends with them. And the owner of the company one day, look at that puppy. Yeah. Um, the owner of the, of the company one day literally called me up and was like, hey, I'd like to have a conversation with you. And we went out to lunch, and he was like, I'd like you to – have you ever thought about being an agent? I think you'd be really great at it. And, um, and so we uh, – you know, I was like, yeah, I would love to. And he was like, great. I, I can only afford to pay you X amount of dollars. And I was like, cool. Then I'm going to hold on to the venue as well so I can make a living and this, that way, you know, at least at first. <laughs> and um, did that for six years. So um, I ran the venue and the agency or and the and the the, uh, the festival. Like I said, I had all those things going on about six months into working with the agency. So after two years of doing all of that, I, I walked away from the, the venue kept the festival and was still with the agency for about six years. But the, uh, the agency was, um, they came to me, they, I knew them cause again, they'd lived here in Charlotte as well. And they were like, we, we think you'd be great joining the team. And so I, I did that. Now, was there no conflict of interest with working at the venue, having the festival and working with the agency? So I, I'm very good. And I think anyone in this industry, if you're not learn how to be, you gotta be able to compartmentalize your life. Um, and so I was very, uh, open, like these are things I'm doing. If you want to hire me, that's fine. But if I'm going to be a venue, I know what the agent makes. I'm sorry. I know what the band makes. And if I can make the numbers work to do a show in the venue that I happen to be running and it's one of our artists, I'll be more than happy to do it. But if the numbers don't add up, if we know that the band needs X amount of dollars, but they don't sell any tickets, I can't lose the venue's money just because like, we'll have to find a show somewhere else. And there was that understanding that that's just the way it had to go. You know, um, you had to be realistic with that stuff. Yeah, that that's, I mean, that's very, uh, I guess, wise of you to be able to kind of think about it that way. Because a lot of people wouldn't have the uh, the restraint, I guess. If you're, if, I would imagine if you're representing a band, obviously you're looking at the bottom line and you want to make sure it all works. But at the same time, it's like, you know, if we get into such and such a venue in this city, then even if we don't do great, we at least have it on the resume. And it's like some people are willing to take that hit. I know that I, like, I've done that just from, from booking with Side Hustle where I've maybe gone into a place where I shouldn't have been in yet just to say that we were there and have it on the sure. resume, you know. But yeah. I think down the line, that probably does you a disservice. It's, it's wild that, 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 you that you were able to have that foresight about it because I think that's really smart. It, do you think there is a, a benefit to going into a place before you're ready just just to have it on the resume? 
I think I think you have to look at the overall aspect of the strategy. There was a band that I did represent when I first started, and Midwood Entertainment. When I left Blue Mountain, I left it to start Midwood, and we had an agency division. We closed that October of 2021, but we had an agency division from 2015 to uh, October 2021 where we still represented artists while doing all the other things that we do. And we had an artist that we represented who got a big offer to go play. They were from the East Coast and they got a big offer to go play the West Coast on a great festival. And at the end of the day, they decided to do it. But we had the conversation of, okay, it's great that you've got this. It's great that there are people out west who are recognizing who you guys are, and it's great that they're willing to offer you this money. However, when are you going to be able to go back there? You know, how much routing? You've never played past Mississippi, right? Um, so you want us – you can either fly out there and not make any money but at least do the show. You can route out there, in which case there's a good chance since you've never played anywhere past there and you're not the biggest band in the first place, you're going to use all of the money that you make off of this gig and then some, and there's a good chance the band's going to be broken up by the time you get back to back to home after driving all the way out there and back because we see it all the time. Yeah. Um, but even if you can do all of those things and you survive this, when are you going to go back there to take advantage of this play? Right, right. right? Um, so you're going to go and do this big festival play, and that's great. But when are you going to go back and do a club tour through that region to actually start selling the tickets? Well, we don't know. You know, if somebody gives us another right, there's a lot of ifs on that. So the question is, do you want to? You can certainly do it just for the sake of doing it. But what is the long term strategy of taking this short term gig? Right? Mm-hmm. We got to we got to make money. Okay, cool. But how much money are you going to make off of that? We can probably keep you home and and get you a gig that's caught that that's half the fee, but you also have you know, a fourth of the expenses to get there. So you're going to make more money in the long run by staying home as opposed to spending all of it. And you won't hate each other. You won't be exhausted. Your family won't hate you for being gone. So I think it all depends on the situation. You know, I mean, if, if somebody's going to give a, a quote unquote low level band, um, you know, an offer to play Bonnaroo, do you want to do it because it's Bonnaroo? Yeah, you want to do it. But at the same time, what if you're at 12 o'clock or 11 o'clock a.m. on Sunday morning after people have been out there for four days and you're on a side stage that's out in the middle of nowhere land, you know, at Bonnaroo? Does that make sense to do it? Is anybody going to be in front of the stage? Does anybody remember who you are at that point of the fe- Like, right. You want to look at all of those things and try and figure out what's the long term of that. Yeah, it's something that I've, I've thought about and I've said uh, as well uh, for, for years now when I see bands kind of. Go, especially bands from Florida that they head out to like Colorado or they head out, you know, out West and it's okay. Well, that's cool that you're doing it, but now you have a commitment to get back there. Otherwise it's a waste of time. Right. So what's that yep. look like? Because you still, you can still spend the time growing your, your base in Florida, let alone the entire East coast. And then, but because, right. you know, Denver and, and Colorado, it, 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 there's a good market there. So people want to hit it and they want to get plugged in. But it's like I feel like when you're when you're starting to build your base somewhere, you have to hit those markets a few times a year. It's not enough to go back once a year, especially when you have work to do in your existing market. So it's like it's almost, you know, with social media and the Internet and all that stuff, I feel you can really you can build your brand. And then the numbers uh, through those means will show you when it's time to go out to those places. Right. When it's like when it becomes more financially viable or when you know that you can hit it, you know, twice a year, three times a year, because you know that maybe you only need to do your market once a year now. Right. So it's like right. things like that. Um, I think are well, and also, also trying to figure out when is it time for you to actually pack up and move? 
You know, it may be that you're in your example, you're abandoned Florida. You want to get out to Colorado. And I'm not saying you move before it makes sense to move. But let's say you go out to Colorado, Colorado twice. And the second time you're selling out the three to four hundred cap venues or all of a sudden you're selling a thousand tickets. And you're like, how is it we're selling more tickets in Colorado than we are in Florida? Right. Maybe you need to move to Colorado and build off of that so you can tour and branch out from there because that's where your biggest buzz is. Right. You know, um, I mean, there's always going to be situations where where you're based doesn't make sense for you to stay. You know, and sometimes you need to get up and move. Sometimes you don't. But you got to look at all of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, when, yeah. you, when you were working with bands as an agent, what were you kind of looking for before you guys signed them? And what were some strategies that you guys used to help kind of build the brand recognition? Well, um, first off, at the end of the day, if you're an agent, if you don't like the band, you're it's a waste of time, yeah. right? doesn't matter how much money the band is making. If you don't like them, at the end of the day, good, bad, or ugly, a band is a product, and I am the salesman. And if I'm going to go out there and I'm going to push my product that I'm trying to sell and, and get people to pay the value of what that product is, I realize that this is totally taking all the emotion out of something that's so emotional like music. But at the end of the day, you, you, you're a salesman. It doesn't matter if you're selling a shoe or you're selling a band or you're selling a couch or whatever. You are trying to get people to buy your product, right? So I think if you're not a big fan of whatever that product is, you're not going to do a very good job of selling it. So I think number one is, is always, do you like this band? Um, there were some categories that we looked at, which were more of like guidelines, if you will, to sort of weed out who was serious versus who wasn't, if, if that makes sense. And we would do things like, um, you know, be grossing $100,000 in touring annually alone, meaning not with your merch sales and not with royalties, where it's literally like shows. through touring period through festivals, private events, uh, ticketed shows. Are you grossing an average of a hundred thousand dollars a year? Are you doing roughly, um, 200 to 400 hard tickets in your home market and then anywhere from about a hundred to 200 tickets in the eight most regional markets from your home. And then we would also want to see at least two to three years of, uh, professionally put together, um, tour history. You know, so keeping tabs. I think I shared something like that with you a few years ago oh, yeah, or something yeah, like that. But yeah. something where you're actually showing me like, again, at the end of the day, your product. Are you running? How are you running it as a business? Are you showing that you're keeping track of this stuff so that we already understand that you get that this is you're trying to do this for a living, which means you have to do it as a, you have to run it like a business. Now, certainly were there bands that we signed that were only, say, $30,000 bands or $60,000 bands? Absolutely, because we, we thought that there was something special enough with them that we made the time for them. But we still use that. You may or may not be surprised how often a band is going to reach out and be like, yeah, we, we want an agent. We've played two gigs. Yeah. <laughs> both in our mom's backyard, yeah. you know, like, um, you know, people aren't ready for it. So we sort of gave these guidelines, if you will, as sort of a way to, to sort of raise levels of expectations, if that makes sense, not to try and be a hard ass, but, um, just raise a certain level of ex of expectations on what it may, what makes sense to actually work with an artist, you know, with an agent, if you're going to be an artist. Um, but we, at the end of the day, it was really about, is this something that we can be passionate about? Because again, we're going to go out there and we're going to sell it. And then from a standpoint of, to answer your question about like growing that artist, a lot of that goes down to the strategy, you know? Um, and, and I know that that's a vague way to say it, but 
you know, is this a band that's drawing people in their home market or are they drawing people really outside of their home market and how often and how often do we need to start starving those markets? And, you know, um, how often do we need to, you know, do we need to talk about them moving? We need to talk to other agents in the industry and try and get them tour spots, you know, to be an opener for somebody else or just get them on the right placement of a festival at the right time of day. Um, those kind of things, you know, so on and so on. There's a lot of different strategies that go into it, but, you know, um, aligning them with a lot of other people that are like-minded thinkers and genres and artists and stuff like that too. Yeah. So. I, w- I would imagine that there's a level of, you know, them releasing music and stuff as well, because obviously it helps when there's a new product to sell because the show yep. is one thing, right? But if, you know, it's been, if they haven't released a record in three years, then we're not really selling a different, uh, it's hard to sell a product that, that that's that's kind of different. Even though the live show might be different, there's new songs, there's a whole new thing. If you don't have like like the the, the materials to show that you're still working with materials from three years ago, then how do you sell that to a venue, right? So was there ever like a, like a push from from the agency to like get their get to get the bands to like you know be focusing on recording and and releasing new music and content? I mean, it's always helpful when you've got something to actually market, you, whether you're the agent or you're the publicist or whatever. If I'm the agent, I'm not talking to, you know, publications and things like that, like a publicist would or a marketing person would. Right. But I'm certainly calling ba- I'm calling uh, talent buyers around the country being yeah. like, here's the cool new thing that's coming out around this band. You know, their album's been nominated for a Grammy. If you don't have an album, you're not going to get nominated for a Grammy for sure. You know, whether right. big bands or small band or whatever, um, you know, there's a lot of different factors that go into that but uh i think that it, it, to some extent it's a hit or miss there was an artist that we represented years ago uh, not midwood but at blue mountain artists um who never released albums and his ticket sales kept going up and up and up and up and up really? and i mean never released albums you know it could be five ten years between when he was doing an album or not now he was playing new material he just wasn't recording the album so yeah, I think you got to keep the. I think you got to keep things somewhat fresh, but at the same time, it also depends on what's what's the difference between your albums and your live shows. There are, you know, if we talk about jam bands, most of them their albums is not what anybody wants to listen to in the first place, right? right. So as long as they're coming out with new material to at the shows, then people want to you know trade tapes and get recordings and this and that, whatever. But um, you know, if you are a very commercial sort of radio friendly, you know. Uh, three-minute song rock band or something like that, you know, I would imagine, not, again, not lumping everybody together, granted, but most of those artists are going to go out and play a show and their song's going to be, maybe it's now four minutes instead of three minutes. It's, you're not talking about doing like a 20-minute song, right? So, you know, their songs are not going to be that much different live than they are on on albums. So I think at that point, you definitely need to be releasing new music um, a lot, right? you know, to keep yourself fresh. Right. So, yeah, man, it's uh, I remember when you, when you sent me that sheet because I was trying to figure out like you know what agencies are looking for and this and that. Um, and I, I saw that sheet and I saw the numbers and everything that you guys were dealing with, and I was like, oh, we're not even close to like needing an agency. I mean, or maybe needing one in the sense that like I couldn't handle it all myself, but also like it wouldn't have been worth anybody's time to take us on it. Like with the numbers that, that you were showing me versus what we were doing, I was like, there's no, there's no way. So I think it's interesting. It was cool that you, that you did that. Um, and I think that, I think that like part of uh, showing bands those guidelines is also to educate <clears throat> them, right? Because it's like again that they don't know. It's like we just we just started we just started. Right. We don't know how to book gigs. We don't know anything. So we need an agent. It's like 
Okay, well then maybe have like your mom help you or like a friend help you. Don't reach out to a real agency. And if you do, this is what the expectation is. And if you don't have this, then then don't hit us up. You know. Well, but I, I mean, I think I think we should use the word real agency the correct way here from a standpoint of any agency is a real agency. It doesn't matter if you are what a lot of people call in this industry a three letter agency, which would be like William Morris, a CAA, something like that. Right. But um, or if you are a very small mom and pop style boutique agency where you represent a bunch of $500 bands, you know, um, the reality is, is that an, uh, if you're an artist and you're going to sign with an agent, it should be an agent that's appropriate to where you are in your career. Right. Um, and so I don't think we need to say I, I would I, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that we're not talking about, you know, that just because you're not necessarily one of those, quote unquote, three letter agencies or even somewhere in the middle, you know, the larger boutique agencies thing at the end of the day. Just understand where you are in your career and what truly makes sense for who's helping you do what you are doing, you know, Um Work with the people that can help you grow, but don't assume naturally that, okay, I've got this album out. I've got a van. I'm ready to go start touring that you're going to get the the agent right off the rip who's going to immediately sign you and get you on, you know, playing Red Rocks and stuff like that. Right, right. Um, no, that's a good distinction to make for sure. <laughs> um, so when did you uh, decide to make the move uh, from – you know, representing bands into more of the uh, just focusing more on, on talent buying and producing uh, festivals and stuff. I think it was maybe 2017, something like that. I opened the com- I opened Midwood Entertainment in 25th, September 2015. Um, and I would say within about a year, year and a half, it was very, very obvious that the age, that, that the talent buying pos- division, if you will, at the time. So, so, we now have a venue division and an event division. We have different staff who work under each situation and so on. And we had an agency division. So when when we had, in t- October 21 when we closed the agency division, we had three technically technically we had three divisions. Um but in I th- want to say it was uh either fall of 2016 or spring of 2017, um I decided to hire another agent who would learn underneath me. Um, so that eventually they could help me grow on the agency side. And then the event side started to take off and I had to start splitting up my time a little differently. So I started slowly taking less bands or taking more bands off of my desk and moving them over to the rest of the team as the event side started to grow. And then the venue started to come in and stuff like that. And it really made sense to truly divide the company up into different divisions so it was it was one of those things where again like pay attention to what's going on around you you know writings on the wall like there's there's a, a time for a shift and uh and it was just really obvious not to mention the fact that that it really is something um being a promoter is just truly through every ounce of who I am uh, my uh my wife actually asked me earlier um she was like if money was no object would you still do this and i was like absolutely you know, I might do it a little differently, granted, but right. <laughs> I would absolutely still do this. Um, you know, I, I don't know what else. I don't I, I don't want to say that this defines me, but it's certainly a huge part of exactly who I am. I enjoy uh, producing these events. And, and for me, though, of course, I love music. The creativity to me is putting together the, the, the lineup itself 
and making sure that it's something that's got some wow factor and that people are excited. And at the end of the day, I want to stand on the side of the stage, not as much for the artist, but to look out into that crowd and see all of those people really just letting the rest of their lives go and having a really good time and and realize that I was help I was part of um, helping those people get that release. I love that, man. That's so that's such a good perspective on it because like I've talked to you know we have a mutual friend David Stringer. Um, and I've talked to him so much about this where he's been kind of like a big mentor for me on the business side of things and just not just music, but like, you know, just business in general and thinking about how to, you know, think about your, your, your brand and all that and build all your stuff out. And what I've discovered in all that is like the business can be just as creative as the music can. If you try, if you find the angle and if you're an artist and you really think about it, you can find the angle of where the creativity lives and then, and then yep. get, and then feel free to get creative in that space. So I, I love that you're you just kind of, you, you know, that, and you, and you take your Liberty with it and you go full force into it. And you, and as, as the end result, you know, people have the time of their lives and you, and you produce very successful festivals, you know, so far at least. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll, keep, I'll keep doing it. As long as people keep letting me do it, I'll keep doing it. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. So, what are you thinking about when you're producing your uh, uh, festivals? Because like what I noticed when we played Orange Blossom Review and when, when we played uh, Rhythm and Roots up in uh, Bristol last year was that every time we worked with you, you not only provide like a great experience for the audience, but like the artists are so well taken care of, like much more than any other festival I've ever played. Uh, that's not saying that I've been treated poorly elsewhere, but you guys just, you know, you guys set that standard and I'm curious as to, you know, was you, was it your experience in playing in bands and touring that kind of made you think about that? Or is that just something that came naturally to you? Or were there mistakes that you made that made you like, correct things? Or wh why did you do that, basically? <laughs> um, you know, the, the questions you're asking sort of are slightly awkward because I don't know how to necessarily answer them without sounding super conceited because I, I really don't want it to come across that way. Right. But um the reality is, is not a, I've sort of felt this one. I'm a big firm believer in that there's nothing I'm doing. My, all of my success is because of the people around me, regardless of my role. I am nothing without my team. I have nothing without the support of loved ones. I'm nothing without the support of, of my employees. And I, and, and they are all equally responsible for all of the success Midwood has had so far. Um, and because of that, you know, I try to sort of stay humble in, in, in the reasonings for me doing any of the things that we do. And the reality is, is that not a single person is buying a ticket to come hang out with me. We're producing these events, right? We're on the back, we're on the, uh, the back side of these things, you know, we're in the background. Um, you know, sometimes there's an event producer who's out in the front, people know who they are, they get up on this, you know, whether it's press or whatever, and that's great. Um, but the reality is not a single person is buying a ticket to come hang out with me for the weekend, right? They're all coming to see, to have the experience that they want to have when they're at their festival and they are coming to see the artists. So because of the, of that, I try to make sure the artists understand that these people are coming for them. They're not coming for me, you know? And so they should be treated with the respect that they deserve because they're the ones who are helping sell those tickets. Are we, are we paying them? Yes. Are we providing them a platform? Absolutely. You know, but on on the true artist side of that, though, if we just talk talk about the the level of how I hope we're treating, and thank you for saying so, but I hope we're treating, you know, all the other artists feel that same way. Um, but 
is that this is always going to be their home away from home, right? And so it, regardless that I'm paying them what they asked for or or negotiated whatever the deal is, you know, we confirmed it at some kind of price point, but those artists are still making the decision to leave their home and come spend time with whatever in the, in the space of whatever we're offering them. So creating opportunity in an environment for them to feel as comfortable as possible. And none of it is perfect. You know, um, I try to go to different festivals and see what everybody else is doing and sort of learn um, and take those ideas and, and incorporate it into some of our other stuff, you know, where it makes sense to. But, um, you know, yeah, like they're no one's there for me. They're all there for the artists. So make the artists as comfortable as possible and and uh, and make the 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 patrons as comfortable as possible. And that's usually what I find once to create the opportunity for the artists to want to come back, the patrons to want to come back. And, you know, if anything, they want to come work with us as, as a, as an organization, they want to be part of Midwood events because they know we're going to take care of them. And hopefully that word is going back to their agents. It certainly feels that way. Um, Cause we have a lot of, we have good relationships with, I think every agent we work with. Part of that whole thing is, is like the, the artist has to, has to still put on a show. And if they come in and you're treating them like, like the help or something, which has right. often happened in our scenario. You don't go on stage with the best mindset. You don't give the people the best performance. The people feel shorted and then they don't come back. The audience bl blames the artist to an extent, but if the audience is there for like the weekend or, you know, whatever, that they're coming every day for the festival, then they're also blaming the festival a lot too because yep. it's, yep. it's a whole environment that you create. So they're seeing, they're seeing you know, 20 bands in a day and you're one band that did okay, whatever, or didn't have a great performance. But you know, if multiple bands aren't, aren't coming through that way, the audience is smart that they know if, if the bands are just not are underperforming across the board and their experience isn't great, they, they, they directly attribute that to the festival. So I think it's like in, in everyone's best interest that the artist comes in feeling like taken care of so they can hit the stage as best as they possibly can give the best performance yep. possible and the people have the best experience possible, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And trying to, trying to foresee any challenges, you know, before you even give them the offer. That's a big one. You know, yeah. let, let's, let's try and, and be thinking like, okay, I'm at day one. My festival is at day 365, you know, right. What are the problems that we're going to encounter on 300 on day 365? Once the artist shows up, let's think about all of that stuff now. So we can try and give, you know, manage expectations. We do have a concert series up, at, up in uh, the mountains of North Carolina, like I said, at Beach Mountain Ski Resort. And in our offers, it already describes the fact that buses are not allowed to come up the mountain. We will take, we, we leave them at the bottom of the mountain at, at, at a hotel. We put their drivers up at that hotel. If they have trailers, we use our stage trucks and we detach the trailer from the, from the bus and we put it on our stage truck and we pull it up, we unload it. At the end of the night, we load it back up, pull it back down, reattach to their bus. You know, if it's a semi, we do cross-loading using a couple different box trucks. And yeah, it's a little complicated, but we've managed that expectation because the reality is one band didn't listen to us. We knew with the road and the way it is, even with a police escort, it's a scary drive because of switchbacks and it's steep and whatever. It's a ski mountain, right? So, um, and that band got up to the top and when they came off the bus, they were cussing themselves. They were cussing the driver. They were cussing each other. They were telling us very clearly, like you, we should have listened to you, you know? And so we've already addressed those issues from the beginning to help manage those expectations because those are challenges. And we, again, we want the, the artist to be as comfortable as possible. So we've created an environment on the top of the mountain. If they, you know, if they don't want to be in the green room all day long, we go ahead and get them 
band houses, you know, as Airbnbs right around the corner from the resort kind of thing. You know, we, we, we've anticipated all of the issues that may come up because we know it's a challenging day, you know. So um, and so far, everybody keeps coming on to come back. That's, so, I mean, that's that obviously come, comes from a place of having made some mistakes before, though, right? Yeah. So can you for sure? Can you maybe like uh, are there like any one particular moments you can kind of uh, remember that there was like, oh, shit, I'm never going to do that again. I know I, I, I there's no way I haven't made mistakes. I can't think of any off the top of my head that are that big. Like, oh, crap. You know, I'm never doing that again. Um, probably because it's more about. All right. That didn't go as well as we thought. We thought we planned it, but you know, there was a little hiccup here and there. So now we've worked through the problem. I'm more of a, a focus on the solution and not, not as much the problem itself of kind course. of person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, you got to address a problem in order to come up with a solution. Sure. But there's probably 10 solutions to this one problem. And a problem is something that can be solved. Things that can't be solved are just things you deal with. Um, and I know that doesn't really answer the question you were asking, but at the same time, like I can't think of something, excuse me, where it was like, holy crap. That's, I guess, I guess, I guess I'll knock on all the wood I possibly can. I don't think I've had such a major problem that, um, that was truly because of lack of foresight or something like that, that in an artist or an agent called me and was like, that's never going to happen again. Right. Right. This artist will never work with you. None of, I don't think I've had that moment. Not yet. Anyway, I'm sure it's coming. <laughs> well, let's hope not. There, there was a, there was yeah. well, so last time we linked up, there was, there was a scenario that we were talking about at one of the festivals that you're, that you uh, were putting on. And uh, it was like, a, like the, the bus scenario where like the wheels got stuck. Do you remember that? Oh no, that was, that was orange blossom this past year. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to like do anything specific cause I don't know like, you know, how careful you are about oh, stuff, okay. but yeah. like, yeah. So that, I thought that was a really interesting thing because there was, um, I don't even want to call it an oversight, just like a crazy scenario that like you, like nobody would, would have thought to mitigate. So can you kind of go into some of that a little bit? Cause I, I found it super interesting. Well, uh, hopefully I'll tell the story. Um, the the uh, hopefully I'm going to tell the exact story that you're thinking of. Um, but uh, yeah, so we had a bus at at uh, Friday night. We had a bus, no issues. Saturday we have a bus. We go to drop it in the same spot. And for whatever reason, the angle at which the bus driver cut the wheel, and it, it's sand. I got no problem admitting that it's sand. I mean, it's it's we're we're in a city park, but it's you know there's sand underneath the grass for sure. Um, and the way he cut it, we've done the festival there for a few years, never had this issue come up. The way he cut it, dug into the ground. And so it got stuck. So we had to take the trailer off of the bus in order to balance the weight differently so he could try and pull forward. And that worked. The problem was is he pulled forward straight, which meant he literally put his back wheels now in the hole his front wheels had originally created. Um, and of course we tried to get that out, you know, just in, you know, using different easy ideas. And eventually we had to get a wrecker and, and actually pull it out, but the wrecker pulled it, couldn't get actually behind it because of the location where it was behind the stage. So he had to pull it, he had to park perpendicular to it and pull it sideways out of, out of, and I've never seen it done that way before. So it was incredible, but the craziness was, I mean, all of those things were crazy and, and, and thank God it was you know the headliner who showed up early in the morning and they weren't playing till late at night. So we we had we had some time to solve the problem. But if they had kept spinning their wheels, it turns out 
there was a water line underneath that that the, the hole was starting to dig into in the city park. And so any much, you know, too much more of, of them spinning their wheels might have actually hit that that water line and ruptured some water. And that would have caused, obviously, whole other issues. So thank God we didn't have to do that. But now we've, we're anticipating that problem moving forward in general, even though it's only happened once out of all the years we've been doing it. So we're already talking about how to bring in Dermat and literally cover the, you know, any place where there's going to be a vehicle of that size behind the stage and even the stage itself, go ahead and cover it with, with Duramat so we can go, we don't have to worry about those kind of things moving forward. That's, that's the kind of shit that I love right there. It's like, it's like little, like, like what a wild scenario to happen. And then it's like, even if it's something that would like not usually happen, there's still mm -hmm. like, here's to make sure this doesn't happen again type thinking right. that I think is like, what makes you guys stand out, you know, um, versus a lot of other places uh, that maybe haven't had the experience yet to really understand why you try and think about those things and resolve those problems before they happen again, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of amazing promoters out there who um, who do a lot of that stuff. And again, there's totally. no way that I can be original in, in, in that line of thinking. And I think I've... I've learned from a lot of people. Uh, again, I, I'm like I said earlier. Hopefully, I'm not the smartest guy in any particular room. You know, I find that if I'm the smartest guy in, in, in the room, then then people are always learning from me, and that may be a good thing, but maybe not. Uh, you know, I try to surround myself with people who are smarter than I am, so I can always be the one learning. You know, whether that's having conversations with other event producers or going to other festivals and just seeing what they're doing, and 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 I think it's done with intention. You know, like uh, anytime you go someplace. You know, and you're thinking when you listen to somebody else's podcast, for instance, I'm sure you're thinking about, you know, what's the mix sound like? How clean are their voices? You know, what are the topics that they talk about? Even if it's another music oriented podcast, what are the topics that they discuss? What are the kind of people that they're bringing on? How far of a reach? How realistic is it to get for us to get those people? Right. What's the and then you do background on what's the what are the assets that they're using to create that clean sound? You know, all of those things. And you start to think about those are the things I want to be able to do. How do I do that? Right. You know, um, and you start figuring it out. You start asking questions and learning from all of those different people who've done it before you. Right, right. No, and there's there's so many um, talented promoters out there and people that do an amazing job. And uh, we and we've worked with several of them, yourself included. Um, there's also a lot of people that just you know don't have that yet, and that's why I think it's why a lot of times you see festivals fail. Or you know, um, uh, bands don't return to some ones that are reoccurring or whatever it might be. So I just thought it was worth noting uh, in working with you. And we had you know we, when we had Paul Levine on, it was the same thing. He is somebody that also thinks about those things and taking care of the artists and stuff. And it's like you know, there's a reason why people like that keep working and and yeah. and producing. Great. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm curious, like, where do you stand as a fan of music now? There's got to be so much of, of like, like the the behind the scenes that you're aware of, um, and and live performances and and just you know all this stuff that that, that you see on the day to day. How did, how has that affected you as a fan, uh, if, if at all? You know, uh, I mean, any promoter who who says, and this is granted, this is my opinion. You know, but in my opinion, any promoter who says that that being on the promoter side hasn't affected them on some level, being a fan of music is lying. You know, and whether it's a good effect or a bad effect, either way, if you're if you're a promoter and you haven't been a, and and you don't feel like it's affected you being you know the fan that you are, yeah, I think you're out of your mind. You know, 
I there's certainly artists that I've worked with that uh, you know have not been the most friendly of human beings. So I don't probably don't listen to their music so much. You know, there's certainly aspects like that. But uh, you know, as an event producer, as a talent buyer, and then there on the flip side, there's a lot. Uh, there's some artists that who I work with all the time because they're so amazing to work with. I mean, we are literally family kind of thing, you know, and so on. But at the end of the day, like, you know, if you still don't love music doing this, um, that still needs to be the root of why you do it, you know? Um, uh, because if you're, if you're not a fan of music, then you're, you're never going to get lineups that are going to feel fresh and, and different. You're never going to get, um, you're never going to be talking to agents and, and and discussing what is, what are they really into? You know, I mean, when I was a talent buyer, I'm sorry, when I was an agent years and years ago and I was selling bands, when I would call a talent buyer, usually for the first time, instead of me talking to them about the bands that we represented, I would be like, tell me who you are. Right. You know, tell me about the music that you like. Tell me who's coming to your club that you're really excited about. Do they have an agent? Should I be talking to them? You know, like all of those kind of things, because that to me in this industry is how you really figure out who the people that you're going to have a long-term relationship with, you know, that share some of those similar musical values and all of that. I just bought tickets today for a show in, uh, in, in May, um, for Kenny Loggins. It'll be the first time ever I get to see Kenny Loggins live. It'll also be the last time ever. Cause this is his final tour, yeah, right? He's just here, um, man. I've seen Elton John twice last year. Um, you know, and we just went and saw Tower of Power and, I'm a huge fan of Madeline Edwards, uh, who is a young, uh, up-and-coming um, artist out of the Nashville area. Dia Victoria, you know. Um, I think I'm much more into the Americana storytelling style vibe in general of music, whether it's Jason Isbell or Tyler Childers or Brent Cobb or Zach Bryan or something like that, or whether it's Snarky Puppy, who's telling a story in a whole different way, if you will. You know, but um, I, I don't think there's a specific genre that I like, but I think I tend to or I'm sorry that I don't like. But I think that there is um, I think I tend to lean a little bit more into the Americana um, country bluegrass jamgrass kind of world as far as my true day to day stuff. Um, and I'm tr I'm constantly trying to find more of that. There's a band out of uh, if I remember correctly, out of the Colorado area called Big Richard which is a really amazing all-girl bluegrass group, and they are crushing it right now. And they're just absolutely incredible. So for all those people paying attention to this podcast, check them out if you're bluegrass fans. Um, Katie Pruitt is still one of my favorite artists oh, yeah. um, out uh, there in the world. She can write a song like nobody I know. Oh, yeah. um, she plays with um, jo uh, John Stickley Trio. Yeah, John Stickley. Yeah. No, no. No? Nope. Katie Pruitt. Katie Pruitt is her own... Or maybe you're talking about the fiddle player. The yeah. fiddle player might. Be, yeah. No, I'm talking about Katie Pruitt, the actual like the her own artist. Oh, okay, um, gotcha. totally different. An artist out of uh, um, she's she lives she's based out of Nashville. Mm -hmm. um, John Stickley is absolutely incredible yeah. as well. But um, Katie Pruitt, who we've had on a bunch of our different events, is if you haven't listened to this the album Expectations, go go and listen to that and. If you're not crying by the end of song two, I don't know what's wrong with you. You're, you're probably a little dead inside. And it doesn't mean all the songs are sad or anything like but they're her lyrics are just unbelievably moving. Katie I've just Pruitt. never heard a songwriter write the way she does. I'm going to listen to her after this for sure. Um, yeah. I will put her link in the description or something as well. Yes. Um, Madeline Edwards, check her out. Because totally different, totally different vibe. But they are both really, really great. On the smaller side of artists, they're, they're two of my favorites. 
Yeah. So, so what are you, what are you doing to, to keep your ear to the ground, so to speak, because you're working with, you know, a lot of bigger bands. Uh, and I would imagine that over the years you've established your relationships and, uh, bless you, Gene, Thank you. uh, you've established your relationships and, and whatnot, but there's still, you know, all the artists at the bottom of the bill, so to speak. Um, and right. a lot of them are up and coming and new. How, how involved are you in dealing with them, booking them? How much of that is you kind of, uh, uh, reaching out and how much of it is them reaching out to you, you taking a listen and liking it. Uh, I'm just curious about how you're still finding talent t today. I don't know how generic of an answer this is. I mean, obviously, you know, again, I, I keep talking to my friends and my other talent buyers. I look at a lot of other lineups. I pay attention to other venues. Like I said, we have a lot of venues that we do the programming for. So I'm constantly looking at what our competition is and seeing who's playing in what venue and stuff like that. And is this someone I'm familiar with? And why do I see them? In, why do I see their name a lot? And this, that, whatever, and start, you know, certainly on that level. Um, you know, Spotify, in my opinion, is something, one of the things that I love the most about Spotify is the fans also like section. Right. You know, first off, I'll come back to that in a second. But first off, every Monday when I sit down at my desk, I put on the Discover Weekly uh, playlist. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of times where that stuff is it's all built on algorithms and whatever. But that stuff may be a lot, a decent amount of stuff that I've totally heard of before. And sometimes I get a lot of gems that I've never heard of and so on. Then on every Friday, I do the same thing, but with the release radar. So I can be paying attention to what may or may I not be missing on Mondays and then what's what's brand new that's coming out and who's releasing it and am I familiar with that artist or not familiar and if I am how did I miss that they're releasing something you know that kind of stuff and right. certainly if I'm not then I get to check out somebody new when I find an artist I really really love I will then go to again on Spotify sorry to keep advertising them but uh, you know on Spotify and I go to the fans also like section and then you can see what other people are, if you're a fan of band X, who else are, are you know, are their fans a fan of? Right. And how many of those people have, am I into, you know? And then you keep sort of going down that rabbit hole. You started band one and all of a sudden you got a list of, of five other bands from band one. And then you go down one of those bands. And now you've got another five, you know, so it continues to sort of like bracket out, if you will. But, um, and and agents, you know, um, obviously they're a great resource. You know, who are they into? Whether they represent an artist or not, is there somebody that they're really into that they don't represent? That's always a, a fun conversation to have. Um, What's that conversation I, I, like? I'm curious because, like, if, if there's somebody other that, that they like and they're not being they're not being able to represent them, well, like, what, what's usually the reason? Other than you know, they might already have good representation. Well, I, I I don't know. We don't we don't necessarily talk about it in that way. It's more about like have you know just two fans of music. Yeah, you know. So, but agents have their own finger on whatever pulse is out there, right? So, you know, making sure that you're just asking, you know, you're just constantly talking to people. What are you into these days? You know, who have you checked out? Who's new? Who's not new? Who's got a new album out? Who's got an old album out that I might not have heard of before? You know, like right. everyone's always listening to something totally different. So. I mentioned a couple artists that I'm absolutely in love with. Anton, who's some new artists that you really, really love? Well, you know, uh, right now I, I've been listening to, uh, you know, when I listen to music these days, a lot of it's like I have to learn stuff. So that's that's what a lot of it is. But there's also like, you know, Julian Lage is, is somebody I've been really like digging into. He, he released an album last, what, like a few months, Chris? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like a... Was that Julian what? Julian who? Julian Lage. It's a L-A-G-E. 
Okay. Uh, and he's a, uh, it's a, it's like jazz, but his approach to the guitar is so, um, I don't, it's, I don't know how to describe it. His feel is unmatched. He, he could do all, it's, it's technical, but it's also like so melodic and just, and I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe, but he's, he's a special talent, that guy. Um, okay. um, and then I'm also like, uh, Elder Island is another one I've been listening to. They're kind of like a, uh, electronic y but also folky at the same time. So it's an interesting thing. Uh and uh then obviously Corey Wong is somebody who's been at, on my radar for a very long time and that whole camp of people. Oh man, uh Sammy Ray and the Friends. They're oh, yeah. they're, oh, yeah. they're my favorite right now, hands down. Yeah. I love them. So yeah, that's kind of stuff that I I bounce around as well. You know, it's all different kinds of genres and I don't know if there's any one that I'm drawn to. It's usually just like there's something about whatever's happening in the music at that moment that just catches my ear, you know? Right. But that, that's, that's my point. Like music is like every art. It's all subjective to who's listening to it in the moment. That's why like genres don't necessarily matter to me as much as is that particular groove on that particular track, something that hits me. Right. You know, right. Um, is it, is there something about this tune that grabs me, you know? Um, and, and usually, within 30 seconds, you've either got me or you don't, you know? Um, uh, but I'm constantly trying to find new music to listen to. Um, you know, I, I, and it's just talking to people, but again, like, you know, talking to an agent, it's, it's more about, you know, having that conversation with friends, you know? Right. So it's not like, why aren't you representing this artist? You know, it's, it's more about just, you know, the same conversation you might just had, like who, who, who is, who did you listen to on the way to work today? You know, like that kind of question, right. you know, um, and just seeing what people are into. Yeah, man. So that's yeah. that's awesome. You're still able to still able to kind of be a fan of music while having to deal with so much of the other side. Because I know, even from my perspective, like when when you're a musician, thinking about the music from that angle, and then also the production side. Uh, the engineering side, the studio stuff, the performance angle, then having booked my own band and managed and tour managed and all that, looking at all that stuff, the marketing and everything, sometimes it's hard. You're like, well, I like this band, but like, like there's nice Chris. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like, I like this band, but there's so, like musically, but there's so much that I'm seeing that's not happening that, that kind of makes me not like them as much. You know what I mean? Um, right. So I don't know, it, like when, when you're looking at it from like this three-dimensional view, sometimes you can get tainted a little bit and it, and it becomes very hard to truly be a fan of something uh, just in the, on the musical side of it, you know? Right. So, all right. So I got a, I got a question for you. Yeah. All right. Um, so which is a better song? And you better answer right or we're going to end this podcast right now. Oh, boy. Uh, pressure's on. But um, all right. So the question is Rosanna... Or Africa. Oh, he's thinking about it. I don't know. Africa's a really great song, man. Uh, see, all right. I guess we got to end this podcast end right it. now. What, okay. Rosanna, 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 all day long. It is by far the best produced song. One of the most amazing written songs. It is. It is incredible. Period. Okay. End of story. Your answer is going to be wrong no matter what, unless you start he's agreeing. Not with me. wrong, man. That. <laughs> That little like that shout the drummer gives during that piano solo, like at the end, if you're really listening for it, 
Um, or no, it's a, the piano player, I think, is shouts when Steve Lukather takes one of these licks. You can just hear someone go, oh, it's, yeah. Yeah. He's right. Yeah. I have to listen to it again, man. It's been a minute since I've heard that one. I'm going to have to go back Rosanna. and listen to it again. I just heard Africa like the other day and was just kind of in awe. Of, Great oh, song. Yeah. Great song. Yeah. Not denying that. But Rosanna, by far, by far, I will fight everyone to the death on this one. <laughs> By far, Rosanna is the better song. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and listen to this, and I'll shoot you a text on my updated opinion if there's an update. Okay. Because I actually I need to listen to it again. I, like Africa is fresh in my head, and Side Hustle was working on on doing a version of it. So like I know every part of that song. That's why it's oh, yeah. like, you know what I mean. So it's like I, there's a I, I don't have that same knowledge of Rosanna. So I need to go back and listen to it again. It starts from the drums okay. up, and the drum beat on Rosanna just pipes See? Africa. That, that pretty shuffle type of See? feel. Yeah. Yeah, it's from the drums up, man. It's it's okay. it's what's up. It's stupid. It's so good. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I have stood in the Nashville airport and literally listened to it. No shit. I got to a point where I had to start counting how often I kept putting it on repeat, just waiting for my flight. I literally listened to it on repeat for a good like fifteen to nineteen times. Like it was it was like it's just a good fucking song. I, I will say that I am a a sucker for the pretty shuffle. Anything that has that kind of like that fucking kind of twelve eight pulse to it, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm like, you've got me instantly. Like, just it it doesn't matter what else happens in the song. If I hear that groove, I'm in. You you've got me. Period. Well, so, see, then I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Rosanna, by far the better better of the two songs. I'm going back to listen to it for sure. I'll do that. Okay. I'll, I'll let you know. Now, the best All Steve right. Lukather track though is when he's featured on the Mark Letteri album. That's, that's true. You know, yes. just that's, throwing that's, that yeah. out there. Anyway, yeah. I'll get back to my job. Yeah. But that's that wasn't the question at hand. Yeah, oh, no, I, I didn't say. I'm just throwing <laughs> out some little tidbits out here. That's all. I'll get back to work. You know, but Steve Lukather man is an underrated songwriter because he also wrote uh, Breeze. The uh, 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 George Benson tune, <laughs> which is wild because, like, you don't think of Steve, Steve, first of all, he wrote it on piano. You don't think of him as like a piano player or a smooth jazz guy. And it's like, then you hear that and you're like, I thought you were like the fucking shredding guitar player from Toto. How are you writing smooth jazz on the piano right now? It's just wild, man. You ever listen to, um, you ever, or you ever heard of a guy named Martin Miller? Uh, I don't know. So he's just released like his first original original song, at least from what I can tell. But I came across him during the pandemic on YouTube. Look him up on YouTube. It's the it's like the Martin the Martin Miller Studio Band, I think is what it is, and it's basically all covers. But it's usually sometimes it's like one full song, sometimes it's a thirty minute like medley of songs. Okay, but it is. Um, he, he's an Ibanez player, but but his band is ridiculous. Bass player is amazing. Drummer, I mean, it's all solid pocket stuff, and it's covers. You know, but they're all absolutely incredible. But Mark sits in on a couple of them from time to time and stuff like that, too. Like, it's, it is really fucking badass to watch those guys play. Hell yeah. Yeah. Chris is going to yeah. pull it up. We'll, we'll take a look after the podcast for sure. I think I might have shown yeah. you one of these before. Oh, for real? I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. See if, see Check if out the 80s, out. the 80s medley. That's oh, where you got to start. Oh, yes. I, yes. Okay. I've seen this and, um, it's incredible. I actually tried to transcribe one of Mark Letiri's solos on one of these tunes, and uh, I got uh, I got up to like sixty percent speed, and then <laughs> I, I I was like, "Fuck!" I, I almost got it. I listened to it again at full speed, and I was like, "This dude is an actual alien. How he can yes. play this shit so quickly and so clean? Because you slow it down to like twenty five percent, and you listen to it at that speed, it's 
he doesn't miss a note. It's so clean and so perfect in time. There's no like, the, the, there's no anything that like that that's that's wrong at all. And then you hear it at full speed, and you're just like, how? how just how? That's all I have to say. Just how? Yeah. He's, he's that's how that's how when I first started listening to Aldi Miola, that's how I felt about him. In he's the same not, way. He's another guy. It's like that. You know, all that Return to Forever stuff, man, is so like yep. just yeah. I, I love all that stuff, man. Just mind blowing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah. Oh, well, we, we have a segment called bottom line news, uh, on the, on the show. And basically what we do is we go through a couple topical news articles in the music industry. Uh, and we just kind of discuss some interesting stuff. Sometimes there's not a lot to discuss. And sometimes there's some really interesting topics that we, and usually okay. it's all been like AI related for some reason, because that seems to be the thing that, uh, is taking over everything at the moment, but hopefully I can't compete with a computer. So I'll do my best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro, it's it's wild some of that shit. But before we let's not get into AI right now. What do we got, Chris? Um, all right, I was about to get into AI. Oh, uh, uh, were you really? Nope. Uh, it's just one of the things. All right, so here's one I saw. Um, roughly sixty thousand professional aspiring artists uh, generated ten thousand or more on Spotify. So it's another Spotify article. Okay. Um, but basically, it was going through and like kind of. Like talking about like Spotify released its data from last year, and it's basically saying um, there's nine mil uh, nine million profiles on there. Two hundred thousand of those meet these like certain metrics, and basically that's ten tracks out, uh, ten thousand monthly listeners, and um, there's commercial activity kind of working with them. Um, so out of those two hundred thousand that meet that like baseline, only thirty percent or sixty thousand of those made over ten thousand in revenue, mm. um, which kind of sounds a little like kind of depressing, kind of what the fuck, but it's um, it is like trending upwards. So it's uh, risen five percent in the past five years. So like basically, it's saying like Spotify is getting like. A larger chunk of the pie in terms of like their royalty payouts and like how people are consuming music. So, you know, it's kind of a kind of like a bittersweet type thing. I think it's not a ton of people if you look at the whole industry, but on the flip side of that, you know, it is trending upwards and growing. So, so what's what's the other seventy percent of that? That that's like like making a lot of money or not making any money at all? Seventy percent of that two hundred thousand is making less than ten thousand. Oh, okay. But it's trending upwards. Yeah. So just over the past five years, that number that um, as of as of 2022, Spotify is 20 percent of the global recorded music revenue as opposed to 15 percent in 2017. It's getting to be a bigger chunk of the pie. And so obviously that means more artists are going to get paid out. The big you know, the more people are consuming on that platform, the more money goes into the platform, the more money gets back in the hands of artists. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that. It's also they have a bunch of court cases that are out there. <laughs> they're trying to get people. They're trying to get people to you know get paid more money. Funny uh, enough, Spotify that too. doesn't get min mentioned anywhere in the article. Yeah, of course not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of. I mean, that's a good thing, I, I guess. I mean, the people are getting paid more out of Spotify. I don't know. What do I you mean, think? of course it's good, but I don't. I don't. I mean, and I don't know how the true streaming aspects of that since I've never been in the record industry, but. Uh, it's still just sad that an artist is going to have that many, you know, out of 9 million people who have profiles, only 60,000 total make over $10,000 annually. Yep. If I understood that correctly. Yeah, that's right? what I'm saying. So out of 9 million, now we don't know how much of that 60,000 make a million dollars annually versus 10,000 or whatever, but 
out of those out of nine million, only sixty thousand people, sixty thousand artists make more than ten thousand dollars, which means that out of those sixty thousand, there are some, even at least one, who's only making ten thousand dollars in revenue. And I wish this is the part about the music industry that as much as, of course, I just talked about how great Spotify is, you know, from analytics to be able to look at not only as a talent buyer in general, but to find new artists and this, that, whatever. But it's it's a shame that there isn't a way to truly blend what used to be versus what is now. Like what happened to literally buying an album and listening to it from beginning to end in your car, sitting down with it, you know, opening it up listening to it the first time while you're reading the liner notes and learning the, the lyrics of the song while you're while you're sitting in your room listening to it you know the immediacy of that next track and all of that stuff drives me nuts as a consumer because it also feels like there's there's I'm always looking and I'm a talent buyer so of course I'm always looking for the next big thing and this that whatever anyway but you know how often am I sitting down to literally digest an album you know right. um and it doesn't feel like that's something that happens anymore. And that's why touring is so important because it used to be that an artist could could make a living between touring and selling albums. And now you have to make a living on touring and random sponsorship dollars or maybe getting on some kind of a reality TV show or something like that. You know, you can't necessarily make it as someone who actually sells music. Yeah. $10,000 a year is not going to pay anybody's bills. Well, it's also there's a certain number that's being hit as well to get that $10,000 uh, in this in uh, on the streaming side of it. So, you know, yeah, I agree in the sense that I, you know, as an artist, I wish that we could still make a living selling records. I think that there is a way to, to utilize streaming though, because Spotify is just one platform, but you also have like Apple right. music and you have uh, Pandora and Deezer now is becoming a big one. Um, and all, and so like when you start to split up the platforms and see all the different revenue streams, I'm not saying it's equal. It's not even close to equal to what it was before, but I think there's still an angle to be worked there. And I I think that just the mindset has to change a little bit on, on how, like, how do we maximize the platforms? That's, that's the conversation that's being had, I think now, because like labels will, you know, they're not investing as much money because the return's not going to be there on the streaming side of it. So then they're also taking a percentage of like, you know, touring and merchandise and all the other stuff, which is uh, rough because as a band outside your management and your, uh, your, your agent and your other overhead, now you're paying like your label out on, uh, on, on, on revenue as well. So it's like the bands are having a really hard time right now, but I think there's going to be an answer to this problem. I don't know what it is just yet, but we're already seeing Spotify having to pay out more per stream after a certain amount. And uh, I think we're going to be seeing that across the board as well. So I don't know. I did. Ask AI. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. I, I did grow up though, like, you know, reading the lyrics and, you know, it was like CDs and stuff, but I grew up like reading the yeah. lyrics and like, and really committing to the whole album experience, which is probably why I'm not as ADD with a lot of mu- with music as m- most people are. I find like a band or two bands, three bands, and I stick with them for a while, and then I'll move on after a certain point. But it's like I want to digest the whole thing, like everything that they're working with. If it hits me in that way, then I want to I want to listen to everything that they're doing, and I, and I will spend six months on that one band, you know. So I, yeah. that just might be the way that I came up with music, though. I don't know. So 
I don't know. Yeah. I think it's good they're paying out more money, though. It's, it's an upward trend. Yes, absolutely. Um, something else caught my eye while I was looking, you know, at articles and this and that. And when we kind of got in the Spotify conversation, this this may not be to Spotify's benefit, but I'm looking into this. There's an article talking about a new, essentially a new mode, uh, discovery mode on Spotify. And what I'm getting, what I'm seeing is discovery mode enables artists and labels to influence listener recommendations in exchange for a portion of the stream royalties. So they're like trying to are is spotify also trying to act as a promoter now and take a cut of royalties on top like oh we've already talked about this kind of like i did. think spotify is just gonna start acting as a label at some point and you're gonna have exclusive spotify deals and they'll, they'll be funding artists and it'll be you know on their platform only type shit they're already doing it with podcasts well i was gonna say they're doing it with podcasts but you think that's gonna cross over to yeah, music for sure okay for i sure. mean we have we have an artist who is it's the first time I've truly seen it this way as a promoter where we're doing, we're announcing a show and then the very next day we, you know, we announced we're announcing on a Monday going on sale to the public on a Friday, but on Tuesday in between we're doing a Spotify presale, you know? So it's not a artist fan club presale. It's literally a Spotify presale. Right. So somehow I guess their fans on Spotify will get some kind of a notification that says, use this code to buy this ticket, this, that, whatever. Um, yeah, you know, well, we've and I've never seen that done before. So Spotify is definitely diversifying in what they're capable of. Yes. And so, so this has been a big topic on the show too, Micah, is that, so Spotify is moving into the ticketing realm because yep. they're having a really hard time competing with Apple and YouTube for the, for obvious reasons, Apple and YouTube have uh, many other modes of of income, uh, many yeah. other revenues, so they can af so they can kind of afford to take the hit on the streaming side, uh, music music wise and podcast wise. Spotify has no other mode of revenue, so for them it's all streaming, and they're they're not able to compete with Apple and YouTube and the other ones that offer different services. So uh, what they're doing now is they're getting into ticketing, and I think it's going to ultimately lead to exclusivity deals with artists they'll produce records they'll fund whatever and then it'll they'll be a spotify artist and then they'll, they'll have like i don't know I don't, I don't know if apple and youtube will go the same route but i think spotify will for sure go that route because it seems to be the only way to, to actually compete with youtube and amazon and and apple you know well and and chris you were the one who brought up this topic right yeah uh-huh okay so the, the but the topic was originally we sort of got very quickly away from it on this on this sort of second topic here, but it was about artists are and their labels are willing to give up a portion of their revenue from the stream in order to have better placement and influence the listener. Yes. So I'm if I understood that correctly, is that right? Yeah, that's what I'm getting out of it. Okay. So I'm assuming that what they're thinking is that similar to like what you were asking about earlier about like you know do we put sold out on the on the door versus not or you know whatever they're playing the long game in this case like if if they're saying all right short term we may lose three thousand dollars on this deal but long term if we can get more players then now we're in that sixty thousand we get more more plays and stuff now we're closer to that sixty thousand group of people who are making ten thousand dollars or more right. annually and those are the people who were probably selling the most tickets throughout the world. I would love to see the other half of that analytic of if the 60,000 people are making that money, 
who are they on? I mean, that, that, that's got to be like Luke Combs. I just realized um, the other day is like number 341 of all people on Spotify, right? So he's clearly in that 60,000. So, you know, how many of those people are actually the ones who are quote unquote making millions and millions of dollars touring in general, where maybe they only make $10,000 a year in revenue or somewhere between that and whatever. But, you know, so where does that math all of a sudden start to kick in where that artist and that label are willing to give up a little bit of revenue on the front end, hoping to get to that, to be included in that 60,000 group of people? Right, right. Yeah, that's a good question. Because that, that's what they got to be thinking, right? I mean, the idea is to give up to give up a little bit to gain more in the long run. That's how that's what yeah. you do with publishing and 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 you know the royalties and all that stuff <coughs> as well. Is you give up some of your ability to make money in order to have somebody uh, get you more distribution, more eyes on it, more ears on it, and then you you know twenty five percent of a million is better than a hundred percent of of you know ten, right? So it's like right. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, you know, I wouldn't have thought it that way. And this this article is definitely kind of kind of bashing it. But if you think of it, you know, as an investment and like a way to to play the long game, that's it's not a bad idea. You know, it's probably something you're not going to do indefinitely. But if you give what, I don't, and I don't even know if you can go on and say, all right, we're going to do this for three months and then we're going to back out of this and stop doing yep. it. But you know, if that's your play than respect but if it's just like all right well i'm just gonna do it because it's an option and they can take my cut well that's you know well yeah i mean it, it should never just be that like i think I that mean, of course i but, think that know. i think that there's a narrative being pushed that artists are at odds with the suits quote unquote and it doesn't have to right. be that way if we can it, like the reality is what the reality is there's an ecosystem that's here and we have to figure out how to navigate that and live within that ecosystem. We can sit there and, and put the blame on people and say, Spotify and the labels and whoever are making all the money or even on the live side of it, where it's like, you know, promoters and so-and-so, agents, managers, everyone's trying to get a piece of the pie. It's okay, well, that's true, but you have a lot of people trying to make this thing work. You know, 20 years ago, music was being downloaded for free and now we have streaming platforms uh, platforms coming in and offering a service where yes you're making less money but now we're trying to f they're trying to figure out how to get your music heard more so you can make more money if they, they and they want a percentage of that because that's manpower that's server space that's whatever it takes to run their operation right. so it's like right. if we stop thinking about them as the enemy and start to think well how can we work together to make the thing happen then it becomes a much better you know endeavor it doesn't have to be so like all this animosity with the money people and the artists in my opinion right you know right exactly and that's from the other side too like it sucks that there's a lot of people out there that want to take advantage of people and, and all that and that that happens too and you got to be wary of those people that's always going to exist but you know the intuition and the instinct has to be there to kind of navigate and figure out what's going to work and what doesn't you know so yeah, I don't know. That's it's all interesting though, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, so we also have another segment, Micah, called uh, "Unpopular Opinions." I don't know if you're familiar with this one or not. We each go around and we say an unpopular opinion. It doesn't have to be about music; it can be about whatever. We try to keep politics and religion out of it, but it, if you want to go there, we certainly can. <laughs> Chris, what do you got this week, man? All right. Politics are involved. Brace yourself. Oh, for fuck's sakes. Okay. Um, all right. Daylight savings is bullshit. Oh. <laughs> um, and, I totally agree. You know, 
I feel like most common people have this same thing, but it went to the, I mean, we passed a bill in the Senate that was supposed to get rid of daylight savings. It did not make it to the House, so politicians love daylight savings. Therefore, this is unpopular, and I'm fucking over it. Yeah. So that's that's we're, what I got to say. We've saved the daylight. It's good. It's it's not hurting. We got plenty of it. We're we're fucking fine. <laughs> Most of us aren't farmers and don't use candles anymore. So. And I am a farmer, and I think it's bullshit. <laughs> like, so fuck all this noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm just know. glad I have a device that switches that time for me. I don't have to think about yeah, whether I yeah. need to do it back and forth anymore. Exactly. Um, that being said, it does. It is like today. I woke up at like ten o'clock, which was annoying because I usually wake up like at eight or nine, I mean, usually like eight and get my day started, but I'm still getting adjusted to time change. So I don't like losing the hour, but I don't know. Like, to me, it's, it's not like a, like a big, you adjust pretty quickly. I think, you know, it's just, uh, it's a, like, really a non-issue to me. Well, it's worse when you watch it happen after a gig. Yeah. You know? I was on the way yeah. home the other night and it went from one, it went from uh one fifty nine to 3 a.m. like that. And yep. I was like, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> but then I was leaving my house at 6.30 for my production gig the next morning, and that really hurt. Yeah. That that, that was personal. Maybe don't take late gigs on, on weekends. Maybe let's not change the fucking time anymore. <laughs> How about that one? Yeah. <laughs> All right. What do you think, Micah? Uh, I, I honestly don't give a shit. I got more important things to worry about. With. And again, like I said, at this point, and, and, and I agree, like, you know, time is whatever the fuck it is, right? So if we change, we change. But at the end of the day, my phone does it. And I don't need to think about it at that point. Like the reality is, is I don't sleep all that well in the first place. So whatever sleep I do get is whatever sleep I do get, depending on, you know, no matter what the hours are. So I agree that it's bullshit and it's stupid that the politicians have to be the ones to make up this fucking decision, which is always going to be a bad idea anytime any of them are making a decision. But, um, but I, I don't think that this is like, uh, I think it just is what it is, and eventually it'll work itself out or it won't. But my my phone and my car, apparently. I got in my car on uh, the, whenever the day was, whether it was Sunday or, or, or uh, whether it was Sunday morning or it was Monday morning, whatever. I got in my car, and it automatically changed. So I was like, cool. I don't have to really think about this shit anymore. That's a that's, flex right there. That's You're wild. Do, yeah, my yeah, bougie right. car. Yeah. You're doing all right. <laughs> I might have to get into promoting. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I was going to do that, but I did it. Yeah. Um, Gene, what you got, bro? You got to have one this week. You've gone like two weeks yeah, without one now. I got one. Um, I hate watermelon. I think it tastes like stagnant water. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm not really a fan of watermelon either. Watermelon sucks. It's like, I feel like that, have you seen that video of the the raccoon with the cotton candy? And like, because raccoons like to wash their food in water. And so like you give raccoon cotton candy, he takes it and puts it in water and it just kind of like disappears. So that's kind of like what it feels like when I put watermelon in my mouth. But then it's just like, I just drink out of a bucket or something like that. Like, yeah. I, it's drink just out like, of a dirty gourd. <laughs> yeah, a yeah. dirty, exactly. It's like, it's like I drink out of a dirty gourd. That's 100% it. Yeah. <laughs> But but the reality is is that water it's in a hard shell so of course it tastes like that because it's not going anywhere. It is it's in a dirty gourd. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. So if you think it's going to taste anything different, then maybe you need to think rethink your thinking. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> it's also pretty good for you. Um, but I I don't like it. Don't either. eat the seeds. Then you'll have a watermelon grow inside you. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh my god. It's <laughs> the ultimate dad joke right there. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really like watermelon at all either. I don't really get the thing. I, I know it's healthy and all that but i would and it, like if it's like the only thing to eat i'll eat it but i don't really have like a thing it's whatever i don't really care about it 
Most melons just like. I'll eat all of it. So give it to me. You guys can just pass that shit on over to me. You right watch on, fine. Bro, I was staying. He's going to get an envelope of just like just a moist envelope of melon now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now the awesome. real can't fucking wait. Now the real southerner question. Do you put salt on your watermelon or not? I bet I could get uh, behind watermelon. Not usually. Okay. Somebody hands me if I'm eating watermelon, I'm usually just eating watermelon. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm just saying I, I got plenty of memories sitting at my grandparents pool and you'd. I feel like you're being judgy. Yeah, you get yeah, you <laughs> so just get a you get a slice of watermelon and you get some salt and sprinkle it right on top and that's just your day. Yeah, that's gross. All right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna say it's gross. I've never done it. Um, so I next time I have watermelon, this will of course be in the back of my head, and I will try and wrestle people to find salt. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm gonna <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna try that. I bet I could get behind watermelon if it was salted. Um, I was because then it's just salt water, and then it must taste like you're just drinking stagnant ocean. Well, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, that's way more exciting. Like home. There was a place that I was staying at a few years ago. There's this place uh, in Georgia, uh, like South Georgia. It's called uh, the Hostel in the, in the Forest or whatever. It's like a kind of like a commune. You go and you pay some money, and then you you have a place to stay. But then you also work there as well. Like you have to do a chore. So I was helping with a dinner that night, and the dinner was like this vegan thing, and it was like a like a a watermelon stew kind of thing. And I was I had never been so unhappy to eat food in my life. It was it was disgusting, I will say. It's like, uh, I don't know. I don't even know everything that was in it. I just remember like crushing up watermelon and then passing it on to somebody else. And then there was like other stuff put in there. And then I just remember it being this flavorless soup that was warm. It just wasn't good. That sounds, that sounds terrible. That's yeah, that bad. sounds really yeah. gross. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Not into that. Um, <laughs> what do you think? About this? Does that sound good to you, Michael? Would you eat that? <laughs> I'm usually down to try just about anything at least once. Okay, fair. Um, all right, well, what's, your, what's your unpopular opinion? Do you have any off the top of your head? Well, I, this was one I feel like I, I, I feel like I'm slightly ambushed because this is a great conversation in general. Yeah, and I had no warning that this was even a, a, a thing. Oh, um, yeah, my so, bad, bro. But because I would have saved the Rosanna versus Africa conversation till the end, because what I have found is most people are wrong. Most and people so like Africa like better. Liking Rosanna better than Africa is the unpopular opinion. I think. I so. think the only reason for that, I think, is just because I think Africa has become a meme. Africa is much more of a meme than Rosanna is. So, like everybody naturally just is like, oh well, Africa, because like they they just think of it first. Like I think. Well, and and there was that African. Uh, no pun intended by saying that, but there was, I think they were, I think they were African, but there was the, the big like choir group that did this whole song acapella. If you haven't seen it, look that up. Cause that's pretty incredible. They do Africa, blah, blah, blah. But again, those people are wrong. Rosanna, <laughs> yeah. the right answer. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. All right. That, that is a we good had that conversation already. We just had it at the wrong time of this podcast. Yeah. Sure. You're so, right. that, and I mean, that, that is vastly unpopular uh, on Spotify. Uh, Africa has over a billion plays. Yeah, Toto's got two hundred million. So Toto Rosanna. Rosanna. Rosanna, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um. Yeah. No, that's a good unpopular opinion. My bad. I should have warned you ahead of time. I. Uh, I. I just. No, no, that's cool. My mind. That's cool. Um. All right. So. Let's see. My unpopular opinion uh, this week is that I like to brush my teeth in the shower. I don't know if that's an unpopular opinion. It seems I, like just time. I don't know. That's pretty unpopular. I feel like I, I've heard a lot of people say it's a really trashy move to do that. Well, why? You're literally getting clean. Like that's the person. Like I feel like that's the person who is like, you know, who washes the soap. 
Right. <laughs> no, like soap is perpetually dirty, but you're using it to clean yourself. But as soon as you use it for the first time, it's instantly dirty. You are literally rubbing yourself with your old ge- your old germs from the day before. All of that nonsense, right? right. So who's washing the soap? Right. <laughs> who's washing? <laughs> who's washing the soap? Damn it! <laughs> like, so you can. I, I need I answers. I think you could easily be washing your brushing your teeth in the shower. I you got water. You got the toothpaste. You're just you're doing your thing, saving a step. I agree with that, and I think that it may, it's it's just it makes sense too. But I've had people tell me that I was disgusting for doing that. I'm just like, I just like, I, I do. Do you keep the toothbrush and toothpaste in the shower? No, I'll just bring them in with me while I'm taking a shower. I'll brush my teeth. It just, it just saves time. You know what it's I mean? Okay. I was like, yeah, that makes that makes sense time. because like I was like I was like because I don't shower twice a day. Like you know, I like to brush my sh- teeth twice a day. Oh well, yeah. I'm not, it's not the only time that I brush my teeth is when I'm showering. It's that I brush my teeth in the shower, like when I'm in there. You know what I mean? In the morning, or if, you know, if I'm taking one at night, whatever it is, it's just it's time saver. Otherwise, you got to get out of the shower and then brush my teeth. I'm already in water, right? It's going down a drain. It's the whole thing. It's all it's, it's all right here. What, you know what are we doing? Do you eat breakfast before you shower? Yeah, usually. Okay. Why? Okay. No, that that's that because that, if you ate breakfast after you showered and then after you brushed your te- teeth, then oh, I'd be saying. like, yeah, 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 yeah. You'd be you'd be like, a dirty, tend, dirty. I tend to eat, I'll go with that as my unpopular opinion that I tend to eat breakfast after I brush my teeth. Really, really? Yeah. You don't want to taint the breakfast with the toothpaste flavor. That took that took me a second to like understand what you said. I was like, "What are you talking about?" So, so Micah, what you're saying is you like toothpaste in your eggs. Uh, well, you know, it depends on if I even brush my teeth that day. Who the hell knows, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, we're, we're living life on things. the edge. Yeah, fuck it. Why yeah. not? Anton, <laughs> we gotta, we gotta. Before we get away, it's brushing your teeth in the shower is kind of the. It's like a shower beer. You know, like <laughs> it's kind of like a shower beer. I disagree. Like, you, I disagree. No, 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 no. You can enjoy it outside of the shower. You know, it's I don't like, enjoy doing it. Period. I, well, it's, it's a you, chore. No, it's I kind of like being clean, and I like the process of cleaning my fucking mouth. Yeah, you dirty heathen. But, well, uh, well, I mean, I like feeling in shape. I don't like working out. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some. There, okay, it's each their own. But yeah. like, you know, you, you know, you can do that in the shower. Is one of those things. It's like fine. You're allowed to. I should start. I should start doing pull-ups in the shower. And you're fucking. So when when I was around. when I was in high school, I wrestled when I was in high school, and we were on a, a trip, you know, with the whole team in a in a van or whatever. And one of one of my classmates, teammate classmates, whatever, um, literally was like, "There's got to be a way to figure out how to shower without a without water, right?" And I would remember being like, "I don't think there is." I. I think the de- definition of a shower, rain shower, like every, it's always water. It involves water. Right. You can't, even a bath involves water. You cannot have, you cannot get clean without water. Right. So what Period. was, so did you guys like, no, fuck no. Nobody cares. <laughs> oh man, I was, I was waiting for something. Yeah, like, I was waiting for a fucking jam, a little wrestling trick. So, but <laughs> no. what he tried, like. No, 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 no. There was, there was, we were, as dumb as we were being in high school, we were all smart enough to know that that was a dumb idea. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, Micah, thank you for, so much for being with us today, man. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun having you on. Absolutely. Love hanging all the time. Yeah, Let's man. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
yeah, I've got a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about regarding this and and all the stuff you got going on. So we'll uh, you know we'll, we'll keep in touch, obviously, and, uh, and and we'll link up very soon on some stuff. I'll hit you up. Sounds good. Cool. Thanks, right, fellas. Man. Yeah, have a good one, man. Don't throw your knife.